We have a raccoon climbing a tree. Oh, and that is, uh, I believe that's a pig's butt. That's a pig's butthole right there. This is crazy. Also, I don't know if you noticed, there was a, there, she had like a selection of porn back there, and it was yeah, like, like, Ass Angels yeah. 5. And I was like, huh, four hours long. They had human skulls. Good to know. Good to know. She had two human skulls. So we visited the book trader in South Minneapolis. You walk into this place, and there are bookshelves everywhere. And these bookshelves are stuffed to their maximum capacity. And you're walking in, and you're squeezing through these tight aisles. It's hot. There's kind of a funky smell. And behind this cluttered counter sits an old woman. This is Fluffy from the book trader in South Minneapolis. So we heard about this place from our host that we are staying with in the Twin Cities. And like Shira was saying, this place is filled with taxidermy all across all the walls. Bear heads, bulls. Uh, there was a huge elephant foot. And our host actually found about it through her boyfriend getting her a squirrel with bat wings. And if you think that's crazy, that wasn't even the weirdest thing we saw in the store. An elephant foot. Human skulls. Giraffe tongue. Stuffed quail. Carved alligator Human skull. Human dolls. Children booty. Penis enlargement pills. An old woman's crocheted glasses. carcasses. Shark Jesus Stinky rugs. Tapestry of doll necks. Sweaters. Backgammon. Eyeballs. An erect meerkat. The store has so much minutia in it, and your brain can only hold so much minutia. It will soon start leaking out your ears. And as you start looking at these things and picking out ones that you're trying to look at because you can't look at everything, you start to form a narrative. And it's really hard not to, right? Because you're looking at this stuff and you, there's the elephant foot or there's the meerkats or there's the, you know, the shriveled human head. And you have to wonder, like, how did she get all this stuff? Like, who is this person that she has all these things? Is she like some otherworldly bounty hunter that has like gathered all this stuff? And now here she is as an old woman, like pawning it off to people in some like garbage palace here in Minneapolis. So it the part of what makes this such an amazing store to be in is that it really feels like every item on the shelf has a story, has a unique history, has a story. Yes. It's more than just an item. Very true. Right. And if I don't know, I am one of the rare people who does not make up a story, I say. I don't. You don't know. No. I'm Evan McLonis. I'm Shira Kresh. I'm Ben Thorpe. And I'm Philip Russell. Today on the Looncast, we're talking about stories. We all tell them, but what stories stick with us? How do we form them? And why do we tell them anyway? Listening to the Looncast. One of the things that I think makes us human is the ability to tell stories. We were walking around the University of Washington trying to find someone to talk to that would be perfect for our podcast when we stumbled upon the philosophy department. That's where we met Michael Blake. Stories are maps, hmm. right? And a map never has every small detail. A map of this building won't have this tiny book or this photograph. It, it abstracts, and different maps will pick out different things as important. 
so too with all the stories we tell. Okay, so we love this idea, kind of the idea of stories as maps. And I, I think it takes us back to Fluffy's shop, right? That you're looking at all this stuff, and there's no way that you can tell a story that involves everything. And so you're forced to pick some things out and start looking at those things. But the things that you pick out, so if you choose the elephant's foot and the rifle and the meerkats, it forms a different story than if you were to pick out, say, the, the pornos and the romance novel. The items that you choose to pick out give you a very different idea of, of where you are and what you're looking at. And it tells a story. You're forced to tell a story. It's very rare that you're able to tell a story that is just a bunch of things happened. When in fact, if you look at your life, you say, well, what ha well, a bunch of things happened. From that huge array of crap, I construct a narrative. If you ask me what my life has been about, it's going to be, again, a map. It's going to be a complete fiction in a way. I won't actually lie and claim things I didn't do, but I'll pick and choose because I've done a lot of things. You say, well, first I ate this food, then I scratched myself, then I walked. Well, you know, you abstract away from all the details and you tell a story that makes yourself feel as though there's a purpose. And writ large, I think that is potentially the, at the heart of our discussions of the afterlife. We're trying hard to create purpose in a universe that doesn't make it easy to do so. Uh, there are a lot of ways that we do this. To We pick out certain details so that we can tell a story. We're always making meaning for ourselves in these ways. So if you're talking about stories of the afterlife, you could actually tell a story. Say, what's the afterlife? Well, 30 days after your death, your nose will fall off. And 60 days after your death, your left ear will very slowly slide off your body. Well, that's true, undoubtedly. But... Most of us won't tell stories of that. Bertrand Russell did. He said, when someone asked him, what's your afterlife? He said, I'm going to rot. So I think Professor Blake was right about Bertrand Russell. He seems to be an odd example. Picture this. Let's say your grandfather died from cancer and you opened the Sunday paper to read his obituary. It's not going to talk about the three weeks leading to, up to his death where maybe he was going through chemo and losing his memory. It's going to talk about his family life, the way that he conversed with people, and how he affected the world, how his footprint mattered. And that seems to be important to us. But very few of us will say that's the important thing. We'll talk about our children, or we'll talk about heaven, or whatever it is we want. Now, it's possible for maps to be utterly inaccurate. I could draw a map of this building in which there are dragons and fire pits. But honesty or accuracy is not the only criteria because there are multiple possible maps. If you ask me what happens to me after my death, the story is that I hope my children are happy. That's primarily what I care about. I hope they survive and that they have lives that they value. Um, but as far as all the other stuff, uh, I don't know. The literal story about your grandfather dying from cancer and the story about his personal life are both true, but we tend to talk about the personal stuff more. I think what Michael Blake is saying here, and what I think is important to emphasize, is that the meaning we try to make, the meanings we want to make, those come from us. The facts we choose, the things we focus on, that's us making meaning. Well, I think of it this way. If, if in fact, there were no sentient creatures in the universe, if it was just a series of physical rocks banging into one another, there wouldn't be meaning in the universe. Meaning happens because there's mind. There's no possibility of things being valuable unless there is an agent there to value it. 
So in a sense, we do create meaning for the world. We do it through the stories we tell ourselves and through the lives we live that are lived through and about those stories. Okay, so the question becomes, what are the stories that we live through? The big stories that we tell over and over again to help make meaning for ourselves. So when it comes to the most important stories of all, the stories of what happens to us, ultimate reality, death, the afterlife, and so forth, there's a real question as to how to understand them, why we tell them, and all these things. The bottom line here is that I think we want our stories to be remembered. So one vision that's kind of a platonic vision is that what survives of us are the stories that we live through in our lives, and the only afterlife that we'd actually want is the fact that these stories are eternal, that there will be after us other people who will fall in love, who will have children, who will live the same experiences that we do. One of the thought experiments that Professor Blake runs his students through goes something like this. Okay, so imagine how you would feel if five minutes after you died, the world was destroyed in a nuclear cataclysm. I think we'd all be fairly bummed. Uh, and the reason for this is that we don't just live through the experiences, the conscious experience of being in the world, we live through the things that we've built, the stories we tell ourselves. The stories that we want to tell and that we continue to tell have something in common. At the very least, the most basic stories that we want to tell ourselves, stories of virtue rewarded, of the possibility of survival, all of these are intended to make the world our home. I think that's one way of putting it. That instead of a story which ends with the innocent destroyed and evil triumphant, a story that inevitably comes back to good people will triumph and virtue will be rewarded. These are stories that we tend to tell ourselves over and over again. So we're coming out of our fallout shelter after the break with a really interesting conversation about why we continue to tell the same stories over and over again. More on that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Whole Space, because there's a hole in this space that only your ads can fill. Imagine our four disgustingly attractive voices promoting your stuff. It would make it sell really, really well. Please, please give us your money. And if you're interested in sponsoring the Looncast, you can reach us at thelooncast at gmail.com. Thanks. Now back to the show. So you're interested in how stories get created. Are they the product of an individual imagination 
or are they things that are contributed to by many different voices? The answer in folklore, when you're talking about folklore, is that stories are really both. They are both the performance of one individual and therefore the artistic production of an individual and at the same time they are also the product of many years of creation. In thinking about how our stories can be passed on long after we're gone, we spoke to a folklorist. I'm Professor Sabina Magliocco. I'm a professor of anthropology at California State University Northridge. But before we jump into it, here are some basics. Folklore is traditional expressive culture or informal knowledge. And let me break that down for you. So when I say traditional, I mean something that has continuity through time and space. Traditional stuff isn't just old stuff. There's plenty of folklore, for example, that spreads horizontally in society like a big oil slick and then just kind of fritters out or morphs into something else. So yes, the tamales recipe that was handed down in your family from your great-grandmother to your grandmother to your mother, that's folklore. Okay, so maybe pieces of the tamale recipe changes here and there over time. Maybe you use a little less onion than your mom and she used more chilies than her mom, but the overall recipe remains the same. Now let's look at the next part of the definition when I talk about expressive culture or informal knowledge. Those are slightly different things. So let me do expressive culture first. Um, expressive culture is a part of culture that allows people to express their feelings. So traditional expressive culture is culture that allows for the expression of those feelings, whether it's through telling a story, singing a song, performing a dance, putting on a festival, making a dish, um, anything that allows you to express yourself that you have learned informally. So that's my quick and dirty definition of folklore. Do you have any questions? Okay, we know that was dense. And congratulations on completing the first day of Sabina's folklore course. But to reel it in, here's an example of how folklore has manifested itself within our own group. Not too long ago, Evan decided to grace us with some unsolicited relationship advice. Ben and Phil were discussing the mandatory qualities of their prospective soulmates. And in response, Evan goes... The ocean doesn't start deep. Wait, what? And as much as they made fun of me, my words of wisdom just kept on coming back. Like a virus. The ocean doesn't start deep. I love that problem. Where did you hear that? <laughs> don't, don't, this guy came up with this thing. His, yeah? His relationship advice. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually good. The ocean doesn't no, start oh, deep. No. Proverb, I'm dying. I love it. It's a proverb. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this to this, my This class. is folklore. Yeah. This is folklore. Yeah, we're, we're Especially if like people pa pass yeah. it on, pick it up. That's hilarious. Okay. If that anecdote doesn't work for you, how about another example? So let's take something like a legend, right? Since that's the most common form of storytelling in the modern world. The hooked hand. It was a crisp October night when his girlfriend picked him up. They drove off together down curvy side roads until they eventually took a turn into a heavily wooded area. The car bounced uncomfortably over the unpaved road, but they soon came to a sudden stop after the girlfriend had deemed that they were completely secluded. She tuned the radio to something smooth and soft as a way to inspire her boyfriend to move a little closer. It worked, and they began kissing feverishly. Barely audible over the sound of their connecting lips was a report coming from the radio. Their lips split, and her boyfriend murmured softly, Uh, turn it up. 
This just in. A serial killer has escaped, and we have reason to believe that he has already committed two vicious murders. Please stay indoors at all costs, and if you see a man with a steel hook in place of a hand, alert the authorities immediately. That is all. As the report ended, the boyfriend pleaded to his girlfriend to Take me home, please. I want to go home. Come on, baby, said the girlfriend, hinting at disappointment. No one's going to find us out here. We're completely safe. Don't you love me? All her attempts at convincing her boyfriend to stay and make out with her were unsuccessful, and her disappointment soon turned to anger. She peeled out of the woods and took him straight home without a word. Sensing that she had upset her boyfriend, she tried her hand at chivalry by walking around to his side of the car. She was going to get the door for him, but she found herself unable when she saw a bloody hook hanging on the door's handle. Is that story the creation of one individual, or have lots of individuals contributed to its creation? Probably a lot. Probably a lot, because how many times do you think that spooky story has been told? Countless times. Uncountable, right. We can't even imagine how many times. It's kind of a classic um, slumber party story, summer camp story, um, you know, scoutmasters or mistresses. You could hear it in scouts. You could hear it, you know, in many of these. At a Halloween, like, spooky party, you could hear it in any of these. Or parents who are like, yo, don't be canoodling, and here's why. That's right, that's right, exactly. And so both those things are true right? Both those things. In other words, it is both the performance of the individual in a particular setting who might then tack on something at the end. So, you know, don't go canoodling because it's Hope really dangerous. Hook for a hand. He's waiting. waiting for you. He's waiting. <laughs> exactly. You got it. Um, but it's also something that everybody has contributed, contributed a little bit to. So if you were to tell that story, you know, this fall at a Halloween party, you all of the different versions of the story that you have heard and read about and maybe seen on TV or online would all kind of combine and you as an artist would artistically choose which parts of that story you wanted to tell and how you wanted to tell it. So if our lives are the stories, then maybe we each are a variation on a greater narrative. Hey, there's a shooting star. What did you wish for? (laughs) Well, if I told you that, then it wouldn't come true. Okay, so with a lot of folklore, it's easy to think that we don't still use these stories anymore, or that we're above them in some way. But how about we look at it from another angle? Superstition. Superstitions have persisted throughout history, not because they're real in a scientific or measurable way, but because they're bound to stories. And stories matter because we're human and, frankly, it's impossible to escape them. The whole idea of wishing upon a star seems to be ingrained in us at an early age. Whether it be a literal star or blowing out the candles on our birthday cake, superstitions find their way into our everyday almost seamlessly. While you may not think or realize you do it, We are constantly attributing the occurrences of random events to some kind of power, some otherworldly force. All right, I'm Jeff Stevens, an assistant professor of psychology at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 
He's an evolutionary psychologist that you may remember from our previous episode, Things Not Seen. We like to be able to make sense of our world. <clears throat> and when there's things that occur that we can't make sense of, we have to attribute that to something. <clears throat> and so we tend to attribute it to something that doesn't exist. We tend to create something right. to, to kind of put the blame on effectively. And later on in our discussion with Sabina, we started talking about beliefs and their evolution into superstitions. But there are also a certain number of beliefs that are rational ways of explaining weird experiences, right? So for example, um, have any of you ever had that weird experience where you wake up, you think you're awake, but you can't move? And you feel like something is like sitting on your chest and keeping you from getting up in bed. In fact, you, you can't move, you can't cry out at all. You're very much aware of what's going on around you. You can hear your roommate's stereo, you can hear you know, your sweet mates or whatever in the house. You can uh, maybe even hear um, your alarm clock, your clock alarm go off or your phone or something like that, but you can't move to get up and turn it off. And then eventually, after 15 seconds or 30 seconds or something like that, you're able to move again. Uh, sometimes people have the impression that it isn't just some unnamed force that's sitting on your chest pushing you down, but that the thing on your chest is a really nasty spiritual force. A dark cloud, a shadow, a hooded figure, a witch, something creepy, um, a really nasty looking animal, something like that is the thing that is pushing you down. All right. This experience happens to about 18 to 20 percent of any given population group. So that means 18 to 20 percent of any given population group, anywhere you go in the world, has had this experience at least once. The other interesting thing is that almost all cultures have a way of explaining this experience. And it's different. Everybody has a different explanation. So for example, if you go to Vietnam, the thing that sits on your chest is called a Da Cho. And the experience is called Cho Chua. Cho Chua, uh, the, the bad spirit, right? The belief is that these bad spirits can be kept away if you um, properly propitiate your ancestral spirit. She goes on to say that if the heads of your family perform the right rituals, then your ancestral spirit, the one that you're praying to, will guard your family from the evil spirits that could invade your life. And on the flip side, if you aren't doing the right rituals or you aren't paying attention to your ancestral spirit, well, those evil spirits will definitely come and get you. Uh, for example, in Newfoundland, and actually in much of... Um, old-time Great Britain, not modern Britain, but Britain 200, 300 years ago, the belief was that witches caused this bad experience, that it was a witch who sent her soul out in spirit form to ride you at night and to torment you. So there the problem was that you had argued with your neighbor, she was a witch, she always had it in for you, and because you actually forgot and let your pigs root around in her garden and she was mad at you and yelled at you the other day, now she sent her spirit out to sit on you and ride you and torment you in revenge for what you had done to her. Totally different beliefs, but two beliefs that have arisen to explain a real somatic experience that we understand, neurologically speaking, medically speaking, as sleep paralysis. The whole experience of sleep paralysis was easily explained 
by the belief that there are people out there who have the supernatural ability to do harm. Stories and superstitions are our way of coping with things that we don't completely understand to make more sense of the world around us. This is another theme in a lot of philosophy, which is that we're thrown into a world that's clearly not built for us. We have bodies that break, we have relationships that fail, we have a world that contains an enormous amount of pain, and it's nice to imagine that eventually all that goes away, because it helps us get on with the business of living. So some of the stories we tell ourselves are intended to make a deeply horrible world uh, more palatable, more comprehensible. Another example is that of knocking on wood. We've all been in situations like these. I can handle these super spicy tacos. We are going to sell out of ad space. I won't die alone. There are a few theories about where this comes from. Some go back as far as pagan ritual, others as recent as the 1800s. So the first theory goes that before more organized religion took hold, many cultures across the world worshipped and mythologized trees. Trees could be oracles or house the spirits of the ancestors. Occasionally, they were even the representatives of the gods themselves. In either case, it was common practice to lay your hand on the tree and ask the god inside for good luck or to show gratitude for something that had already occurred. Especially in the case of those who saw the spirits of their ancestors as being held in the tree, putting your hand on wood was intended to guard you from any envious spirits or gods who thought you were taking too much credit for the good in your own life. Essentially, it was a practice of gratitude. It showed the gods that you were grateful for your good fortune. When Christianity appeared on the scene, that tradition was co-opted to fit the mythos of the New Testament. Instead of spirits or gods, it was common to carry around wood as a symbol of the cross and to touch it as a way of warding off evil. The second theory is that the origin of knocking on wood doesn't actually have its roots in spiritual mythology, but instead in a kid's game. Back in the 1800s, Tiggy Touch Wood was a popular version of tag in which touching wood was what you had to do to be safe. Because it's close enough to knock on wood, there's the possibility that the idea of playing it safe in a kid's game by touching wood morphed into knocking on wood to ward off bad luck. It's hard to know where exactly these stories come from. But whatever the origin, it's impossible to deny the way these stories and traditions have seeped into our lives to give them meaning. So I think all of these stories and superstitions are there as a map. They help us to make sense of events that we can't otherwise categorize. Right? They help us to come to terms with a really chaotic world. And so over time, they've stuck with us. Okay, so stories are all around us. They're present in every moment of our lives. We see constellations not because there are heroes, goddesses, or mythical creatures in the night sky. We see them because we love to connect the dots. We see them because we breathe meaning into chaos. And like the stars that are reflections of thousands of years ago, our stories are windows to the past that will carry on long, long after we're gone. The Looncast is produced and hosted by Evan Michelonis, Shira Kresh, Philip Russell, and myself, Ben Thorpe. Special thanks goes to the other voices you heard in this episode. Fluffy from the Book Trader, Professor Michael Blake, Professor Sabina Magliocco, and Professor Jeff Stevens. Thanks also goes out to some of the musicians that you heard on this episode. Chris Zabriskie, Kevin McLeod, Sans Nam, Tonality Star, and Zebra. 
If you have enjoyed our show, it would really help out if you reviewed our podcast on iTunes. You can do that on your computer or the podcast app on your phone, which is the little purple guy. Search the Looncast and then click write a review. It really means a lot to us. With each review, we move higher up the What's Hot list, meaning more people listen to our podcast. If you love listening to the Looncast, consider making a donation so we can keep doing what we're doing. No donation is too small. Even if all you can afford to give us is a couple bucks, think of it as buying one of us a cup of coffee. You can easily make a donation from your PayPal account by going to our website at www.theloncast.org and click Donate. We really appreciate your support, and thanks for listening. Thanks also goes to Saule Itamadi, Carla and Jerry Coglin, Lynn and Timothy Travis, Kathy Broder, Nikki Rudolph, Pam and John Newstead, Francine and Michael Lingus, Michael Barber, Stephen Cogliandro, Madison and Ryan Albright, and Erica Chomsky and Hefe. Yes, they did. Can you uh, mind us using this on our podcast? Well, that's why we're yeah, I'm just taping asking you it. <laughs> I have to ask, you know, just to be sure. Yeah, well, you asked me before we yeah. started this.